Kane is in the building. <laughs> Graduation season is here, and it's time to look for jobs. So it's time to trade in those hoodies, T-shirts, and jerseys for button-down shirts and white, blue, checks, and stripes. That's right. It's time to step up your professional wardrobe and start dressing like the boss. Our friends at Liberty Shirt Co. have been making our favorite flannels, but they also make the finest stress shirts so you can look like the CEO. Every Liberty shirt is made in New Jersey, and if you use a promo code 3P, and get 10% off your purchase. That's promo code 3P for 10% off the purchase. Post-draft episode, the episode you've all been waiting for. We are very fortunate to have our favorite agent, David Cantor, back on with us. David added six new members to his family, including Asante Samuel Jr., who got drafted to the Chargers. So congrats on that, David. Very exciting night for you and your organization. First question that I want to ask, and I'm sure that everyone wants to know, what, what's it like for you that night? You know, draft night, you got all these people different talking, uh, calling you, you got the players, you got their families, you got the guys that you work with. Just, just take us and, you know, give us, give us a rundown from your point of view of, of what draft night is like. You know, for me, it's not what I think people on the outside think it is. You know, people think it's like this constant excitement and it's like, oh my God, it's the coolest thing ever. It's a lot of time spent on my phone, looking at my phone, text messaging on my phone, talking to general managers in their war room about, you know, potentially trying to move up to trade for a guy with Asante. He's one of the rare guys in this sport where I had a really strong idea that he wasn't going to make it in the first, but we had two ridiculously strong teams in the first and to be honest with you, he probably was going to be the Browns pick at 26 had their pick, uh, the corner from Northwestern, not been available. And the Browns were very transparent throughout the process. They did a great job of kind of hiding their love for Asante. You know, we talked multiple times, Andrew Berry and I, in the last month about Asante and about where they felt he fit. I think that they probably picked height over talent, as did many teams in the NFL this year. And I think a lot of teams are going to regret it. I, I don't like to call out general managers for their draft day decisions, uh, but I'll call out Trent Baalke for picking Tyson Campbell at, 20, at 34. I'll call out Brian Gutenkus for picking uh, the corner he picked at 29, Eric Stokes. Uh, you know, those guys at Georgia are not half the players that Asante was as a football player, you know, physically they were impressive because they're both 6'1". They both ran under 4'4". Um, but you know and I know 40 times mean nothing in the NFL and where you get drafted me is nothing in the NFL. You know, I think the Cowboys pick of Kelvin Joseph at 44 was a tremendous reach. Um, and obviously I represent Asante. So the draft day was two days for us. Uh, Thursday night was, hey, there's a small possibility you go in the first round. Let's be together. You know, it was very chill. His whole family here at my home, uh, socially distanced, masked up. And then the next night, Friday night, it was more of like a, hey, we're going to get drafted in the second round at the least. Let's have a party. Let's have everybody here. 
Um, and Asante sat next to my wife at Perry and basically I got up every five or six minutes to talk to him and fill him in. We had a really strong team at 49. The Arizona Cardinals were going to draft him at 49. I was super pumped about it because one, uh, Steve Kyman, I have a great relationship. Vance Joseph and I have a great relationship. Uh, I love the idea of him being in a place where he can save money because he doesn't have to pay state taxes. And the LA Chargers had told me in the previous, in the prior to the draft run up that, you know, they felt like he was a little small, but I knew that Brandon probably liked him more than the GM did, you know, because the GM's kind of like the new modern GM where they look at measurables as much as they look at the talent on the field, which is why so many teams make mistakes on so many of these draft picks. And, and this is actually my draft board. This is kind of what I do. You know, it's color code, coded for all the teams. You know, you can see Asante Samuel's name. And it's weird. This year is the only year that GMs didn't respond to me. Um, I don't know if it was COVID. I don't know if it's that they, didn't, they knew they weren't going to take my guy. But one of the teams that didn't respond was Brian Gutenkus from the Packers. And I'm talking about, you know, 15 text messages and five to 10 phone calls in the week and a half leading up. And we have a really good relationship. And he actually text messaged me in the middle of the draft around round five. And I was like, oh, he's alive. I didn't know your phone worked. You know, and he's like, oh, come on, man. But that was a team that I thought might sneak in there and take Asante. Buffalo was another team that if, if Rousseau is not on the board at 30, then Asante Samuel would have been a Buffalo Bill. So it was touch and go at the back end of the first round. And then the beginning of the second round is really a little bit more of a crapshoot. There's a lot of players that, as you saw, you know, are first-round graded talents that for whatever reason make it into the second round. And, and I, I just want to say this. I think I've had pretty good success with second-round picks. Xavier Howard, not my client when I did his contract, but he became the highest-paid corner in NFL history when he did his extension a couple of years ago as a second-round pick, although it wasn't really the highest-paid corner in NFL history. It was just about $50,000 more than Josh Norman, but his previous agent announced that bullshit. Um, DeMarcus Lawrence did become the highest paid player uh, in NFL history at the defensive end position. He was a second round pick. Olivier Vernon was a third round pick when he became the highest paid player in the position. And Eric Weddle became the highest paid player in NFL history as a second round pick. So it's not where you go, it's where you end up. And I, I kind of like the fact that he's going to go to Brandon's defense. You know, they're going to play him right away. I would assume that Asante will be an opening day starter, uh, which is more important than getting drafted in the first round. And he'll get to a new contract a year earlier than all those other guys. And I, I think great things are going to happen, to be honest with you. So um, I'll ask this then, since you said uh, you think Asante will go uh, in right away and play right away. So not just for Asante, but do you see um, your other clients, the teams that drafted them, do you see them as good fits or do you, or would you rather see them go to other teams? I do. I'm, I'm real, you know, we, you, you know, as an agent, you just don't know because you don't know what happens to a player once they get paid. Right. Like the difference between being a college football player at Florida or Alabama or Ohio State. Uh, and I know we can make the hey, they're already getting paid joke there, but they're not. Is what happens to a kid when he makes twenty eight million dollars fully guaranteed? What happens to a kid when he makes two million dollars fully guaranteed? Do the motivations change? Uh, do their mind does their mindset change? Do they understand that the NFL, especially for veteran players, when rookies come in the building, they're not necessarily loving you. They're not necessarily begging for you to be there. You're coming to take their job. And so sometimes you get treated like shit. Sometimes you get shit on, literally and figuratively. And so it's really difficult 
uh, for people who are making it to the NFL as rookies, even if they come from the big programs and they have 10 or 15 kids that are friends with them or they grew up with or they know that are in the NFL uh, for the first time, getting that experience and the, the demands on their time, the demands on taking care of their body, it's a full-time job now. So it's not, you know, hey, show up at seven in the morning and leave at two, go take a nap. It's not, you know, it's seven o'clock in the morning or seven o'clock at night, five days a week. You got to be devoted to your body. You know, you got to try to live as clean a lifestyle as you can so that you can be in the best shape possible to recover. It's an incredibly long season. That's the other component that a lot of college players don't understand, right? You're starting this thing next week or early this week, late, late this week with mini camps then you're going to have a one-month period off in July, and then you're going to start training camp from July 27th until September 1st. Then you're going to go preseason games and then to a 17-game schedule with the added game this year. It's abusive is the best way to describe what the pro football lifestyle is. And so you have to really take care of your body. You have to try to remain as injury-free as possible, especially the little nicks and bumps you know, a sprained wrist or a toe or an ankle or a hammy, soreness is going to happen to everyone. And you've got to go into the mini camp and the training camp in the best shape of your life. So for a Michael Strawn, who's always in amazing, impeccable shape, he was our seventh round wide receiver from the Colts. For him, it's going to be the adjustment. He hasn't played football in a year because his season got canceled. So it's going to be, hey, you're going to be in the big time now, right? You're on the Indianapolis Colts. They have high expectations. You've got big-time players around you almost at every position. They have a very deep roster. You've got a, a player coach who was a player and is a coach now in the head coach. You've got a new offense coordinator because obviously Nick is now the Eagles head coach. So you've got some opportunity to open up some eyes. But most likely you've got to really take the next step from a raw standpoint and a developmental standpoint and show that you belong in the big leagues. For Avery Williams on the Atlanta Falcons, it's can you be that five-tool toy that Arthur wants and that, you know, you've got a unique opportunity to do because Avery, a lot of people don't know this, not only is he an all-time kick return and punt return touchdown guy in NCAA history, but when he did his pro day, we had him work out at multiple offensive positions. And as one team told me, he might be one of the best slot receivers in the draft and he's never played slot receiver. So there'll be some trickeration things that they do. There'll be some unique things um, that he can do offensively and then obviously return-wise. And I'm pretty super pumped about him going to Atlanta. That's a roster that needed him. Uh, it's a perfect fit for him culturally. Uh, a big fan of, of the organization with Terry Fontenot and Chris Olson in the front office, then obviously Arthur as the head coach. You know, he's been shown once he was at Tennessee to really be able to be creative and use guys in a unique way. And then the Bears with Kyrie Stanga, you know, that's an exciting one from the standpoint of I, I, I call Kyrie Stanga John Penasini 2.0. And so last year, you know, we were lucky enough to have John drafted by the Detroit Lions. Uh, he had a rough, rocky training camp start. I think the adjustment to pro-life to being 100% every day at practice. But once he got full pads on and got settled in after the first couple weeks, he was dynamic, to say the least. And I think he played in way more snaps than they anticipated, and he was way better on the field than they anticipated. And so I'm hopeful 
that that Kyrus has the same kind of uh, you know curve up uh, in his career with the Bears. The Bears are on notice, obviously. I think everybody realizes that, and you hope that he gets to keep his staff and his coaching people intact going into next season because I feel like he's one of those guys where two or three years from now we'll be talking about him as a dominant force in the NFL. Um, and so it, it's exciting. We have a guy going to the Chiefs in Zane Anderson, uh, and we've got some veteran guys going in uh, also. We have, we have Jaquan Bailey going to the Philadelphia Eagles, which I think is going to be really fascinating uh, because he's got some Iowa State coaches in the building. The Eagles are very thin at defensive end, so it's kind of like a potluck thing where they just threw up a bunch of names on a board, and whoever kind of takes the reins has the future of the Eagles at defensive end. And so hopefully Quan can take it to the next level and really utilize his athletic first step. And Zane is going to get a chance to go, you know, to a team that obviously has a former BYU safety who's the starter in Daniel Sorensen, who is very similar track to, to Zane, that BYU plays their safeties about 25 yards off the ball. And it's hard to project whether or not they can play. You don't know because a lot of times they're just coming downhill. Um, and so I'm excited for his opportunity I, I, all I hope for the guys that are later round guys, you know, sixth, seventh, and free agent guys, you just hope that in the preseason they get three or four full quarters of football because that tape allows them to fit in with another team if they do get released, and it allows them to keep their career going, you know, either developmentally on practice squads or, you know, on an active roster. I like that. And I just want to backtrack a bit. Um... Of course you do. <laughs> um, started talking about like your role on draft day. So tell us more about the behind the scenes that we as fans don't necessarily see what goes on on draft day. So this year was a full blown shit show, um, especially as it relates to. So Asante, I'll go Asante quick. So Asante, we had multiple teams, and I basically spent. I've actually got my notes from the draft right here sitting next to me, I basically spent the two weeks leading up to the draft putting together my board for all my guys and then putting little my little symbols, my hieroglyphics, if you will, that I've had for the last 25 years, just in case someone ever got a hold of this, they might not know what I'm doing. And one, it's privileged information. And two, you know, it's men's lives at stake. And then two, more importantly, um, I was able to kind of eliminate teams. You want to, you want to find where your fallback is and what the teams are not are going to do. So early uh, morning Saturday, excuse me, Friday, I started getting word that the Jaguars were in on Campbell. I backed and forth with Trent Baalke a little bit. He lied to me um, because that's what general managers do and told me, no, it's going to be, it might be Baltimore. And then of course it wasn't Baltimore and multiple people told me it's Campbell. They've already told the player. They've told the kid. Um, obviously, he grew up and went to the same arch rival high school as Asante. You know, they know each other. They train together. So we were able to confirm that it was him. Then I kind of went down the line with Joe Douglas and talked to him. I talked to the Falcons, you know, where they were thinking. They obviously moved back, but they were on safety. You know, Miami, I think, was on a running back, but obviously they got traded up ahead of them. I think it was, you know, I don't remember what team it was that traded ahead of the, of the Dolphins and, and drafted a running back. You know, I knew that Philly was in the mix, but Howie was very not 100% sure. 
which made me think they were out. So now we're at pick 37. Cincinnati didn't respond at all, which made me think that, that Asante was not going to be in the mix there. So now we're at 38. 39 and 40 were Denver and Carolina. They obviously took two guys in, in the first round that picks eight and nine. So we weren't going to be there. Detroit was really strong. They were like, they called me multiple times. I spoke to Dan Campbell. I spoke to Brad Holmes. Um, you know, it was, hey, we're looking at one other position possibly. And then Asante would definitely be in the mix. And again, we're eight picks in. So you don't know if your guy's not going to be there, but teams are doing the same kind of recognizance. Uh, then I got, and I thought that was good. New York very quickly told me, yes, we love him, but we have two other guys that are going to be on the board for us that we would take. San Francisco was very clandestine as they were through this whole draft process. One person was telling me, yes, 100%. Another person was telling me, no, 100%. And And that gets me to Dallas at 44. And I knew very, very early in the entire process that Dallas didn't like Asante's height. And so really, you know, the, the size component of this draft process um, is kind of what allows you to know what teams basically draft on height, weight, and speed versus what teams draft on talent. I, you can pull 32 general managers in the NFL post-draft and take out their player that they drafted at the corner spot in the first two rounds. And I don't think you'll find many general managers that don't tell you Asante Samuel was the third best corner on their board based on talent, based on film. Unfortunately, scouts fuck up drafts, general managers fuck up drafts, and coaches fuck up drafts, and they draft players based on height, weight, and speed versus talent. And the reality of it is, is they're making a projection. No one knows if Justin Fields is going to be the next Brett Favre. No one knows if Trey Lance is going to be the next Joe Montana. No one knows if Joe Schmo can play right guard. It's just all projection. And most of these teams don't have any fucking idea what they're doing. And that's why every year there's another draft where they go, oh, we'll fix the holes that we've had last year. I mean, only one team wins the Super Bowl every year, let's be honest. And that team didn't need any of their draft picks this year, Tampa Bay. So it's a very unique, disturbing process because it's so uncertain and it's so ridiculous. So with Asante, I knew we weren't going to the first 45. I felt really strong about that. And then behind the scenes, I'm constantly texting with the teams that I thought would potentially take them. So you think maybe there's a team that will trade up. Maybe it's New England at 46. We knew it wouldn't be Jacksonville at 45. And then the L.A. Chargers were very clandestine in telling me what they liked and what they wouldn't do. And so I was basically – completely happy for the player because I knew we were not getting past 49. And I told Asante in the pre-draft process, his range for me was probably 26 to 46. And we went 47. So, you know, I, I kind of feel like I know what I'm doing. Um, part of that range is, is the love from the Browns and then having a stopgap team. For us, the stopgap team was the Arizona Cardinals at 49. Steve Kime and I communicated through the entire second round. And basically we did the same thing I just walked you through. We went through and eliminated teams. And and oddly enough, two of the teams we couldn't eliminate were the picks 47 and 48. And I tried to get Kime to move up. I don't think he really wanted to. Um, Not just, not because they don't love Asante, just because there was some, still some depth at the corner spot where there were teams that thought that some of the guys that ended up going in the third round were, were good enough guys to, you know, kind of fill in a hole. 
I think Dallas's pick in the third round shocked a lot of teams. And then you go and reset. You know, for Asante, he celebrates, he's happy. You know, the Chargers call, so I'm standing right, I'm sitting right next to him when they call. You know, we know that he gets drafted 47. And then it's like a flip switches. I go handle the media stuff with him, hugs, kisses for everybody. You know, we've already taken our pictures because we've been sitting there for an hour or so. And then we go and, and, and Ness and I, Ness Mugrabi, you know, my right-hand guy that, that runs the company with me, we basically, I had to leave to go to Olivier Vernon's wedding because uh, he got married on Friday night and I'm late for the wedding. And then I, I, you know, Saturday morning, early we start, I think probably I slept maybe four hours, start eliminating the teams that won't take Avery Williams. He was our next guy on the board. And then you go down the list and, and really in the fifth, the end of the fifth round, teams start calling for undrafted free agents, which is absolutely absurd. And I'll, I'll, I'll remember my first call for as long as I live because it just made no sense when the team was calling and who from the team was calling. And I won't, I won't spoil that. But basically they're asking Mike Strong to make a decision on being an undrafted free agent to a team while that team still had seven draft picks left. And it, it's one, it's insulting to the player. You know, Mike was disappointed. I think when I'm like, hey, listen, this team thinks you're not going to get drafted. And he's like, well, let's just wait. Let's just wait. Let's just wait. And then there's some gamesmanship that you have to do as an agent. You have to kind of feel like what your number is for the player. You have to look at the chart for what teams have paid undrafted free agents previously. You have to know the level of interest for your guys. So Strawn was one. I mean, Avery Williams was one if he didn't get drafted, but he got drafted in the fifth round. So that was that took us out of all that undrafted free agent nonsense. But, I mean, I have – you know, you guys are seeing this because you're on camera with me. You know, I've got like 12 offers for Michael Strawn here. Then the next page I've got like seven offers for Zane Anderson and Kyrie Tonga. So, you know, we're, we're going through the list. We're going up and down our board. And then, unfortunately, for certain guys, uh, teams will pull their offer because they got another player. And so what I did is I just kind of set a number for Mike Strawn and, and Kyrus to teams that were really calling a lot in the sixth round going into the seventh. And the number, I think, was so big that the teams realized that they better draft the guy. And then when I get into the zone where I feel like those are the teams that have told me previously there's some love for the guy and we've cross-checked the board and the needs for the teams, you start specifically texting general managers about your player. So for Chris Ballard, for example, it's, hey, Chris, know your slam. You've got two picks here coming up in the seventh round. You know, Michael, obviously amazing kid, great human being, no off the field. You know, he obviously, like every other player in the NFL, wants to hear his name drafted. You know our relationship. I'll make sure he's ready from day one. You won't regret it. I'll text Frank the same thing, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a relationship business. As that happens, maybe nine minutes or ten minutes later, I get a text message from Mike Bloom, who's the contract negotiator and vice president of football administration with the Colts. Hey, I'll try to get a contract to you on Wednesday, and let's work out the visa. And I'm like – I look at my phone. I'm like, huh? What? Contract. I go, I look at Ness. I go, wait, what's going on? I was like, he got picked by the Colts. So Ness is like, let's fucking go. He's pumping his fist. And I'm like, wait, this has to be strong for the Colts. Two seconds later, Ballard text messages me. Hey, we're about to call him. Congratulations. So it's like, you know, we knew that one 
you know, five minutes, seven minutes before Michael. So, of course, we're texting him. We're texting him. We're texting his family. You know, congratulations. You did it. You got drafted. And then with Tonga, literally, as soon as Mike gets drafted, I had, like, maybe eight teams that I thought were pretty strong with him. So I'm eliminating, you know, hey, Dolphins, do you want to draft them? Hey, Ravens, because they were strong on, on Tonga as a post-draft free agent. Why don't you trade next year's seventh-round pick and move up to get this year's seventh-round pick? You know, stuff like that. And, and they weren't willing to do that. And so you're eliminating those teams. And then, of course, I text message Ryan. I text message Nagy. You know, hey, this kid has one of the most amazing stories in football. You know, homeless, adopted, lived in his car you know, will devote every waking moment of his life to being the best football player possible. And then five seconds later, they write back, you know, about five minutes later, they write back, you got it, dude, we just drafted him. So it's like, you know, you're ecstatic because you feel like you played a bigger role in those guys getting drafted. And then, of course, immediately you turn to Zane Anderson, you turn to Jaquan, and all this is going on at the same time. So it's a little hectic from the standpoint of you don't really get to pump your fist and celebrate the player getting drafted. I think Avery Williams, when he got drafted in the fifth round, we might not have talked to him for like 45 minutes afterwards. Um, you know, Tonga, we fa- <laughs> I get emotional thinking about it because it was such an amazing experience. We FaceTimed Tonga and he just sat there. He was just like, whole time, he was silent. I was like, dude, you did it. Like you, you made it, you're drafted in the NFL. You got a contract in the NFL. You're on a team. You're going to Chicago, except, and he just like sat there. He was just like frozen. He just couldn't believe it. You know, and it's it. It doesn't matter if you're the first pick or the last pick, man. It's a special experience uh, for all of these kids. And you know, it's great to be a part of it. And now Monday, it's back to work. I mean, we're looking at next year's draft. We're looking at adding veteran guys. We're looking at you know building our business and our client roster. We got we got veteran players that literally uh, don't have jobs, you know, going into this year, Jack Crawford, Christian Covington, Olivier Vernon, you know, some guys already have workouts, Joey Ivey, Elijah Holder, uh, you know, Kamale Correa. So it's exciting for us um, to just get these guys opportunities to be seen. And you just never really stop working. Even when you take a vacation, you know, the phone's on and you're texting, you're calling, you're talking, and you're trying to get guys opportunities. We had one guy that we represent that still does not have anything, um, but we're working hard. He has a military commitment, and I think that that really scared off a lot of teams, unfortunately. I love that story about how the Colts still had seven picks left in the draft, and they still were trying to get him as a free agent. That, that's just something that I had Hold never on, heard. I didn't say it was the Colts. Hold on now. Hold on now. Hold on. I didn't say That's it was called the record. It was I not the, this, it, the team. It wasn't the Colts. Okay. It, it was a team that ended up drafting a wide receiver that has very similar traits to Strawn in, I think, the fifth or sixth round. And the weirdest part about it is they still said they wanted Strawn. So it, it's one of those things where, I mean, I was never going to send them to that team, but their offer was the biggest, and it made it easier for me uh, to tell teams where my number was. Denver was hot on him, very, very hot on him. Uh, I've got tremendous relationships in the building and some clients in the building. And, and the issue there uh, with Denver was they still had picks on the board and they weren't taking Michael. So it's like, you know, it's hard for the players to understand, like, why don't they want to take me? Why aren't they taking me? Um, and you just go from there. You know, you, you, can't, uh, you, you can't do anything but 
tell the players it, it's sadly not up to us. And if it was, you know, you'd all be the first, second, third, fourth picks overall because, you know, we, we believe in you. We signed you. We paid to train you, house you, feed you, clothe you, and, and get you ready for this process. So, if anything, we want you to get drafted more than anybody. And, and it's a, and it's a non, nonstop commitment. As you mentioned, you know, it's, it's talking to the GMs. It's, it's talking to your partner. It's, it, like you said, it, it's a unique experience, this draft, this whole draft process. And, you know, you specifically talked about how the San Francisco 49ers had handled their drafting this, this, this uh, draft. And I, I completely agree. It was how they handled everything. The fact how not too many people knew who they were going with until the third pick was made and just, just how they handled everything. And, and you had mentioned Trey Lance and, you know, they fooled me, man. Yeah. And, and last week on the show, we actually were talking about predictions for who the 49ers were going to take and our very own Steven Bonazzo. He was on the money. He said, Trey Lance is going three. And there was also the speculation of Mac Jones going three as well. So, so my question for you is, David, did, did the 49ers make the right pick with Trey Lance at three, or should, should they have gone? I'll, I'll tell you four years from now. Fair and enough. I'll, I mean, I'll tell you on all these players four years from now. Like, it, you know, it, it's a, it's a multiple-year commitment. And so for him, uh, I don't know if you can judge him even two years from now. You know, I think that we want to make these kids instantaneously the best at their position. That takes a lot of work, man. Trey Lance played 17 college football games. He's going to play – he's going to expect to play 20 next year, right, if he's the starting quarterback for the 49ers. So he played 20 college football games in his whole college football career. He played in a smaller level of school. You know, he's off the charts intelligent, off the charts athleticism, off the charts arm strength. And those three guys, you know, really Fields, too, and Mac Jones, those five guys will be compared with one another forever and always. What team develops them slower? What team brings them along the process more professionally? What team insulates them from the negativity better? What team has a better offensive line? What team has a better receiving core? What team doesn't have the expectations from the crowd if he throws a bad interception to cost the team a game? and the Boo Birds start, right? Like, all those factors go into it. You know, Mac Jones, arguably the toughest scenario because he's going to New England where, yeah, he probably doesn't start or play this year a lot, but no matter what, white quarterback with a bad body is going to be compared to another white quarterback with a bad body. I like – I think it was Peter King who wrote yesterday, now all he has to do is win six Super Bowls and people will stop the comparisons with him and Tom. Like, that's – that's the shit that that poor kid has to deal with, you know. And, and of course, you're not going to draft him if you know that he can't handle it. But you never really know if they can handle it or not, right? I mean, shit, Josh, the, the head coach, I mean, the offense coordinator became the Denver Broncos head coach and couldn't handle it, right? So, and now he's offense coordinator again. So, you know, it, it happens to everybody. This is a different strokes league. And every person is different. And the way people handle things is different. The emotions tied to winning, losing, not playing, playing. Some guys are really good at sitting on the bench for a year or two and learning. They're able to commit to that. Some guys, that shit drives them nuts. They're like, yo, I'm better than this guy in front of me. I need to be playing in front of this guy. I want to play. I hate it here, etc." Then you go to a bad city, right? Like maybe you don't have the support group in that city. Maybe you don't have the weather you want. Maybe the taxes are higher. So there's so many factors that go into the stupidity of the draft. And 
to be frankly honest with you, it's a broken system. It's a ridiculously antiquated model that will never change, by the way. Um, I'm obviously not a huge fan of it, as you can tell, uh, because I think that teams put too much stock on young guys coming from college football programs and expecting them to all of a sudden walk in and cure the wills, the, the ills and the problems of every organization. And it's just not realistic. It's just, it's really just not realistic that of the 32 rookies that are coming in in the first round, 16 of them are going to be future impact Hall of Famer. It's just the, the process is, is flawed to say the least. So now um, for my question, this is more like a personal question for you. Uh, obviously, everyone has their own opinion. For, uh, for who, like, so I have two questions. Who do you think had the best draft? Obviously, you're more inside than, like, a lot of people are. So who do you think had the best draft? And who do you think was, like, maybe the biggest you. deal from day one? I couldn't tell you because I don't give a shit what any team did unless my guys were impacted directly. You know, like, for example, I looked at the Dolphins draft just a little bit. Because obviously I have Xavier Howard there. I have Matt Skurr there. I've got Sam Eglow on there. So obviously you look at, you know, hey, did they draft a corner? Did they draft a center? Did they draft a linebacker? Um, but really, I, I, didn't, I don't go into the draft, Nick, you know, not to defame the people that do this for a living, you know, and already have pumped out a 2021 draft. There was mock drafts, you know, after round one, doing rounds two through seven. And, you know, the trade, anticipating. How the fuck do you know? how good Justin Fields is going to be. I think he's going to be great. I hope he's a hundred time all famer, all pro, and he makes a billion dollars. None of these guys, I don't want ill will on any of the players, even the bad ones, the guys that have background. I hope they figure it out and they get to the NFL and three years from now, they fire their agent and hire me. I mean, let's be honest. That's what I want. So, you know, at the end of the day, like to know whether or not a guy is going to be great or what team had a great draft. Oh, the Broncos had a great draft because they drafted Pat Sertain. And then 60 other people go, oh, they had a shitty draft because they didn't get a quarterback. Who the fuck knows? No one knows. And to be honest with you, George Payton doesn't know. Vic Fangio doesn't know. Chris Greer doesn't know. There's an expectation that we hit on all of our guys. And the reality is go back to last year's draft. Let's do it. Let's do it. It's fun. I like to do this because it shows you how stupid this is, right? Let's go back just to one team's draft picks last year. Let's go. Joe, I don't know, he tore his ACL, right? How was Tom Brady the year after he tore his ACL? He looked like a scared cat playing quarterback. And that's Tom Brady. I don't know that Joe Burrow is going to be Joe Burrow again. You don't know that Joe – I hope he is. I pray he is. I have clients on the Bengals. God bless him. Chase Young looks like a freak, looks like a great pick. Looks like a dynamic player. He's got another freak next to him on the other side. Sweat, great coaching staff there with Ron. Had seven and a half sacks. I'm pretty pumped about that. Jeff Akuda, I don't know. What did Jeff Akuda do? He played in two game, nine games. Hit 41 tackles. One interception. Looks like it was a good pick. Maybe a good pick. Coaching staff got fired. Entire new coaching staff in the building. Are they changing the defense? What's his expectations? Andrew Thomas played in sixth, fourth overall pick for the Giants. Looks like a pretty good one. I don't know. Tua Tugavaliola. Half the people in Miami want to burn him to the ground after six games or ten games. I don't know how many games he played. I don't know. I, I watched him. I thought he was okay. He looked like a rookie quarterback. That's what rookie quarterbacks look like most of the time. Not everybody's going to be the next pick, Justin Herbert. By the way, Miami, offensive coordinator's gone. Quarterback's coach is gone. Changes. Maybe those guys fit him better. Maybe a year from now we're having this same conversation and you just we're just having a post-draft conversation and the Dolphins drafted a quarterback. And you're like, whoa, holy shit, they drafted a quarterback in the second round like the Eagles did with Jalen Hurts, right? 
you go there and you go, Eagles drafted a quarterback in the second round, and they had a backup that they paid a lot of money to, and they have Carson Wentz. Something's got to flip, right? Then you go to Derrick Brown. Looks like an unbelievable player. Looks like he can play a long, long time. But defensive tackles, you don't know. Is he the next Aaron Donald? I don't know. Is he the next Paul Solia? Maybe he's just a run-stopping guy. Or maybe he's this dynamic get-up-the-field pass rusher. Isaiah Simmons looks like a five-tool guy. Looks like he can trick him. Looks like Vance figured out a good way to use him. Looks like he's got his dynamic ability. C.J. Henderson, he had a rookie corner year. He was hit or miss. Would Jacksonville want him as a top 10 pick again based on what you see the other guys behind him? Probably not, right? You'd probably think, hey, maybe Jerry Judy or Tristan Wirfs or one of the other guys that got drafted later on. But look, Calavion Chason was drafted in the first round by Jacksonville last year too. He had one sack. They drafted another defensive end. They signed defensive ends in free agency. You know, teams ask these guys to be Hall of Famers right off the rip, and it's just not realistic. Patrick Queen, are in waiting. The Dolphins corner they drafted in the first round, we haven't seen enough of him, right? Clyde Edwards-Hilaire looked like a freak of nature. Then he got hurt. So th this business, Jeff Gladney, you know, got drafted in the first round for Minnesota. Kenneth Murray got drafted in the first round. Jalen Regor got drafted in the first round. Damon Arnett. I mean, these are guys that the jury is still out on all these kids. So to go in and say, hey, the Colts had a perfect draft grade, or hey, the Chargers had a perfect draft grade, I hope they all had perfect draft grades. I want all these men to be successful, especially mine. But you just don't know that the pieces of the puzzle fit together. Like today, Mel Kuyper Jr. dropped his ESPN draft grade. Come on, Mel, for crying out loud. You know, we had eight quarterbacks in the first three rounds. Five of them will probably be out of football in four years, or backups, right? So we don't know. I mean, the statistics are not great. Here, Chargers got an A. Dolphins got an A. Jets got an A minus. Oh, yeah, A minus. That's a real grade. Baltimore got a B plus. Bears, here you go. Bears got a B plus. Rams got a B plus. Vikings got a B plus. Giants got a B plus. Mel's just giving out B pluses like Skittles. Eagles got a B plus. Panthers, a B. Ooh, a B. Why did they get a B, Mel? I never thought they'd go with a quarterback after they traded for Sam Darnold, and they committed to Darnold. Okay, so why do they have a B? I wasn't as high on Brady Christensen. By the way, a player I recruited didn't get as a client, but he should compete for the left tackle job. Well, guess what? If he wins the left tackle job at pick 70, that's not a B. That's a freaking A-plus, Mel. Cincinnati got a B. Cleveland got a B. Mel must not care. Could be in jail in six months. Denver got a B. Jacksonville got a B. Detroit got to be. Man, and B's are very, very strong. Let's go to the bad. Who's the worst grade that Mel Kuyper Jr. gave? So far, all I've gotten was B minuses. I'm like through the entire. The Colts got a C plus. Why? I don't understand. Instead, general manager Chris Ballard went for defensive end with his first two picks. Does this mean all pro guard Quentin Nelson is going to kick out to tackle? Well, my client is penciled in as a starting left tackle. So fuck you, Mel Kuyper Jr. Sam Tevy started 49 games in the NFL, and you can go eat a dick. New Orleans Saints, C+. Pittsburgh Steelers, C+. Pittsburgh Steelers have six, five, six trophies. The Saints have Super Bowl trophies. How many does Mel Kuyper Jr. have? He's got a trophy for hair. He's got a trophy for being a great inventor of a business and a draft nick. 
But how the fuck does Mel Kuyper Jr. know if the Colts grade is going to be a C or an A? No one knows. It's just a stupid thing for kids like you and draft Knicks in the future to call my son. The team got him at 100, Tennessee. He gave him a B minus. Whoa. Big scary Mel gave grades out. No one gives a shit. People read it. Media talks about it. Let's get them on the football field. Let's see how they play when it's live. Let's see what happens and let's go from there. And let's spend the next four months talking about where Aaron Rodgers is not getting traded to. You put it best. And I think it's hard for people to remember that these are still kids. They're 20, 21, 22 years old, like us. Yep. Like me. Yes. Just like me. Yes. Like you. And 22. Never felt better. You look great for 22. Thank you. I don't think so. <laughs> I wish I was 22. There. <laughs> Todd McShay gave grades out, too. Oh, he gave the best value picks for teams. How do you know? How do you know Zach Wilson's going to be good? Three years ago, we were all blowing the Jets for Sam Darnold. They traded him for some is a great pick in the fourth round, 131 for the good or bad. Lamar Jackson misses 60% of his throws sometimes. Then some games he hits 100% of his throws. Who knows what Ravens team shows up on offense next Sunday? The best pick for the Browns is J.O.K. I don't know. I just read that he had a heart ailment from another reporter. and It was a terrible, risky pick. Again, it's all bullshit. The internet has destroyed the pro football evaluation process because pro football focus doesn't know shit from their right hand to their left. They put grades on all these college kids that's based off of some guy in England watching tape, not knowing what defense they're in. Are they in cover six? Are they in cover two? Are they in cover one? Are they man zone? What are they doing? Are they zone dogging? Are they blitzing? Is there a stunt? Is there a loop? What's going on in the front of them? What's the other players that they're playing with? And you're grading them and then telling teams that, oh, they did a great job because they drafted the highest graded player from a company that didn't exist four years ago. I mean, Jesus Christmas, man. Texans, best pick in the draft. Davis Mills, third round, quarterback, 67 overall. That's it. Give David Culley a Super Bowl trophy. Todd McShay said it's the best pick of them. It's just, you know, here you go. Perfect example. Mel Kuyper Jr. criticized the Colts. I just said that on the air five minutes ago. Todd McShay, best pick in the draft for the Colts. Quiddy Pay, defensive end, Michigan, round 121st overall. Again, both guys employed by ESPN. It's almost like the gamblers that sell gambling picks to the idiots out there that pay to get, their, to get their picks that they're going to waste their money on. What the gambling companies do is they go, hey, the Jets are playing the Colts. 50%, they give you the Jets line. Bet the Jets plus three. 50%, bet the Colts minus three. That's why they can never lose. They always have a winner every time. And the suckers buy it year in and year out, year in and year out. And they waste all their money on these experts. They're no better experts than any one of us. And I haven't watched half the film on any of these guys that aren't my clients, except for maybe 15 of them. Chiefs, Nick, that's what Todd McShay says. Asante Samuel Jr., best pick in the draft for the L.A. Chargers. Let's hope he's right. In my opinion, Samuel can contend with any other cornerback in the class when it comes to instincts, balance, and body control. He's technically sound and changes direction well. Look, I get it. He may struggle at times against bigger receivers, but he plays bigger than his size against the run, and he has versatility to play inside or out, and the ball skills are solid. It's worth noting that Chris Harris Jr. will be 31 and playing on an expiring contract. Boom. Todd McShane's got it all figured out. Rookie of the year, Asante Samuel Jr., God willing. But, I mean, you know, to predict these guys and where they're going to go and who they're going to be, it's really hard, and it's kind of does a disservice to this whole process, right? Like, let's let them have a mini camp. Let's at least let them have one week of practice. Tears and ACL tears and 
hamstring strains and groin tears. It's a very brutal sport. And so I get animated because I love these young men. I love working for them. And I feel like the internet and, and all these processes of where we have to over-evaluate everything, we have to talk about it ad nauseum. Let's just wait and see. Hopefully the guys at Fuckers Podcast, which I've renamed this podcast if everybody doesn't know. It's no longer called the Three Pete Podcast. It's the, the Three Amigos, maybe? Can we do that? Yeah, that works. Or is Fuckers too, too am I allowed to curse on a podcast? Yeah. I mean, how many views is this going to get? Like how many real people are watching it? We getting like 600,000 here after after all the F-bombs I've dropped? Yeah, Barstool might be calling after this podcast. Let's go. I'll negotiate the deal for you guys. Thank you. Good. Nice. Um, Portnoy needs something a little bit better. But going back to what I wanted to ask, you represent these guys who are fresh out of college and the media forgets that sometimes. How do you keep them calm during this entire process where they hear grades about them and it's a lot of expectations that they have to live up to? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tough. You know, one of the first things we do is we tell them in the recruiting process, there's no fettered conversation. I'm not, I'm not filtering anything. I am exactly the way I am on this podcast with my client. Their moms and dads probably don't like it as much because it's difficult to hear the teams don't like you. Um, it's difficult. You know, if you're, if you're Bailey, you know, from Iowa State and you had seven and a half sacks and everybody in the, in the conference feared you and Everybody told you, you know, oh, my God, you're going to be an amazing NFL player, and then you don't get drafted. That's tough, right? That's a difficult pill to swallow. It's emotionally unsettling for a lot of guys. But if you're honest with them through the entire pre-draft process, as long as they listen, which not everybody does, as long as they take it to heart, which not everybody does, you know, you usually have good results. Like, I think that with Asante, the communication was constant. It was always there. It was always upfront. It was always honest. And I think that just because teams didn't like him because he's not 6'1", he, under, he could understand that. He could accept it. He, he didn't like it, right? He's not happy about it. Um, and I'm sure he wishes he was drafted higher, as we all do. But now it's, hey, that's done. That's buried. Now it's we do a financial literacy program with all of our guys where we talk about the things that they're going to need to know, you know, W-9 forms and, and, you know, getting direct deposits and writing checks and paying bills. Cause now it's not on me to support them. It's on them to support them. Now we go into the contract negotiation process, uh, which is really just started about a couple hours ago uh, with the unveiling of the rookie pool and the allotments for the formulas. Then we do the math, you know, we have an analytics department run by Brian McIntyre so we've got kind of a, a, a number nailed on what we expect and where we need to be for the contract. Then it's about getting our guys out to each city, helping them with the adjustment. Some guys will need certain things, right? Like, like Asante doesn't own a car. So at some point in time, he's going to buy a car. We're going to help him through that process. A lot of guys haven't ever rented a house. Here's a debut of Axel, my, my youngest yeah, son. So long. No, you're going to go upstairs in a minute. Say hi to the boys. That's high by. That's that's the six-year-old. That's that's we call him little David because he looks just like me, um, or mini David. So you know now it's about getting those guys adjusted to the NFL and adjusted to what to expect, right? Like if you're Avery Williams, I don't worry about him adjusting because of his mindset through the entire process. He was happy being a fourth-round pick. He ended up being a fifth. He was just as happy if he got signed as an undrafted free agent. Like he's one of those guys where it's like. I just want the opportunity to go out and play ball. 
I think Michael has a little bit more work to do with him because he got a visa issue that we've got to get resolved. So we've got lawyers involved. You've got customs because he's a Bahamian citizen. Um, and then you've got, you know, Kairos. I think there'll be a little bit of adjustment. Uh, to, look at that. Speaking of, speaking of things, there's Michael calling me. We got to pause it for one second, guys. Mike, I literally just mentioned your name on a podcast I'm doing. No, it's never a bad time to call. I'll just go on mute. While David's muted, we'll just continue. Um, so far, Stevie, what are, what are your thoughts? What do you mean by my thoughts? Like just I, hearing David talk. Like, I mean, it. He brought up a good point with uh, like over um, me myself, like I'm doing mock drafts and looking at mock drafts, and you know. Like I've been watching NFL Network, uh, and all what they have to say about the picks and stuff like that. I'm like, I'm all into it. But then at the end of the day, you got to realize, like, you don't know. You know, for me, like Justin Fields, Kids. you know, I'm hoping he's the next Mahomes. Not even for my, I mean, I just like the player, but also for the Bears' case. But at the end of the day, he's still just 22 years old. I mean, like you said, half these guys are our age who are now ex- expected to produce so much on when we watch them on Sundays while next year I'll be on campus watching them or you guys will be, you know, at your homes watching them. So it's like you do have to think about that, but then we get suckered into, you know, the whole draft process and, you know, the whole draft weekend and, the, you know, the, the, pre, uh, the pre-draft show and then the actual draft that lasts, you know, eight hours like every day. And then, Sorry, guys. There you go. We're right. just – you know, BSing a little bit uh, about what you said with um, how we do, like, with all these analysts that with all their grades and stuff like that. And I was saying, you know, I'm a sucker that falls for the mock drafts. And- we all are. The media has kind of corrupted our minds into buying into what they have to say about all of it. And you put it best. It's the tough reality that we live in. Not, so not just, the, I was just going to say, not, not just the media, but another point that he brought up was about these – these players coming from these, these big schools and, and having the expectations where, you know, they think that they're going to, they're going to end up being, you know, the, the next hall of famer for their team. And when I kind of heard that, I was like, you know, that's not even something that I initially thought of, you know, whenever you think of these big programs, you think, you know, it's a huge stepping stone for what these guys want to do. But, you know, David, when, when you think about the, do you think that these programs are, you know, kind of trapping these kids in a way we're saying you know you know they might not necessarily have the skill but you're still going to come to you're going to come here and you're going to be changed instantly and then they go into the league and you know you you definitely see their drop in in confidence a little bit do you do you do you essentially see that David as as these programs trapping these kids or do you kind of just see it as you know they're committing to Alabama for a reason so whatever happens happens uh no I think that you know, you go through the high school recruiting process is completely ridiculous. I think that the set, the star system is, you know, as bad as the mock draft system where you just don't know how a player adjusts to being in college and having the pressure of going and playing in front of 100,000 people instead of maybe 1,000 people at a high school football game. Uh, you've got a constant repetitive cycle of the big schools and high schools, you know, and obviously here in South Florida – We've got many of them, St. Thomas Aquinas, where Asante went, the Bosa family. I think they had four or five guys get drafted this year. And then American Heritage, where obviously they had a top 10 pick and Pat Sertain Jr. His dad is the head coach of, of, uh, of American Heritage. Um, and I think they had six or seven draft picks. So, you know, those, those schools feed because they get kids prepared for life at big-time college football. And then those big-time college football programs get kids prepared for the National Football League. But – 
it, it's an uncertain process because money affects everyone differently. People have external factors and components that make it difficult to succeed. It might be a, a stepfather who's constantly infiltrating and wants to know everything about every practice and is bothering the GM or the coach or showing up or making himself too visible. It might be a needy brother who has issues, you know, might be have mental health issues or physical ailments and you've got to keep sending money home. And so you feel like you're working for 20 people instead of one. It might just be that you're not as good as you were in college because everybody else was an All-American too. And everybody else is playing kill or be killed. That's one of the biggest things that I think a lot of players don't understand is this is a grown-ass man's game. And if you're coming in as some 22-year-old kid getting $20 million guaranteed for the left tackle job of someone else who's making $2 million guaranteed, sure, it makes sense that you should play. But that guy making $2 million guaranteed is going to hang on to it with every tooth and claw possible because that's his living. And he's got a wife and three kids and a mortgage and two car payments. And so, you know, that's the parts of this sport that I think make it difficult for young men to adjust. And, and I've had, you know, top 10 picks make it and succeed. And I've had top 10 picks make it and fail um, because the adjustment was either too much, too steep, or the team, the coaching staff didn't hang in there with them for an extra year. They didn't coddle them. Instead, they criticized them. You know, and so there, there's always those types of situations. I'll give you a good example, not to put his dirty laundry out there because I'm having dinner with him tomorrow night, but, you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers drafted our kicker client, Matt Gay, two years ago in the fifth round. He had a very good season until the last game of the year where he shouldn't have played, but he'd gotten, he made a tackle on a kickoff and he tweaked his back and his hip. And so they basically said, hey, it's the last game of the season, tough it out. And he missed three field goals in a row and he cost them the game. And he was devastated by it. And it upset everybody. It upset everybody in Tampa. And so Tampa, instead of doing the smart thing, which was put their arm around them and coddle them, uh, the coaching staff in Tampa, specifically the kicking coach, uh, Bones, Chris Boniel, and the, the special teams coach, Keith Armstrong, decided to treat training camp and the offseason program like the Navy SEALs. And every single thing that Matt did last year in training camp with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers was not good enough. He made five for six, and his miss was from 64. Not, you got to make it. But the other kid was four for six, and his longest was 51, and they pumped him up. And it was a mind fuck every day in practice, every day in training camp, every day. And they kicked him ad nauseum. I, I think there was a time when Matt and I talked before they finally released him, and I kept telling him, you're going to get cut. You're getting cut. You're getting cut. They're going to find another kicker off the street, and he'll be the starting kicker for the Buccaneers. There's no way you're going to be the opening day kicker for the Buccaneers. And he was like, no, nah, I think I have a good shot. I'm like, okay, you can think whatever you want. I've done this for 25 years. This is what I know. And so I was back and forth screaming and yelling at the Bucs for how they were handling it. I thought it was ludicrous. I still think it was ludicrous because obviously Matt would have won a Super Bowl. And – uh, I think he would have been an incredible kicker for them for a long, long period of time. But they just didn't hang tight with him for whatever reason. They maybe didn't like his mental makeup. Maybe they didn't like his physical makeup. Maybe they thought they made a mistake. Or maybe they thought they had to go in a different direction. And they obviously eventually cut him, cut the other kid, and signed, I think it's Ryan Suckup, right? He was the kicker for the Bucks, And they signed him to an extension this year. So they're very happy. Well, when Matt got cut, 
we had opportunities to go to very, very significant teams with potential holes at the kicking spot. One of the teams that I chose more than any was the Colts. And people were like, that doesn't make any sense. Rodrigo Blankenship's on the team. He's not going anywhere. Big leg, rookie kicker, you know, can make all the kicks, you know, Lou Groza award winner, et cetera, et cetera. And I said to Matt, it's not about you becoming the opening day or the starting kicker for the Colts. It's about you going to an organization that's going to teach you that it's different every city. Every coaching staff and every front office is different. And I need you to see and be around people that are going to pump you up instead of put you down. And that's not a negative on the Bucs or the way they coach. It just didn't fit for us and for Matt. And obviously, for Suckup, when he came in, I'm sure they didn't coach him like they coached Matt. They probably put their arm around him and hugged him and kissed him. And if he had a miss, they told him it's gonna, everything's going to be kumbaya. But that was not their mindset with Matt. It was not how they treated him. And I think him going to Indianapolis kind of reset him mentally and emotionally. He kicked there for a few weeks on the practice squad, and eventually the Rams signed him off their practice squad. And one of the reasons they did is the, the positive things that, that Chris Ballard, the GM of the Colts, said to Les Snead and Sean McVay. And to be frankly honest with you, it's probably the best thing to happen in Matt Gay's career. He's now an unbelievable kicker for the L.A. Rams, and I expect him to sign a multi-year extension and be their kicker for the next 10 to 12 years. And so sometimes you have to go backwards to go forwards in this sport. And I'm just grateful that, you know, he was able to get multiple opportunities. So now my, um, my question is draft is, so the chunk of free agency is over. I mean, there's still a lot of free agents, but the big timing of it's over. The draft is over. So what's next now between now and say mini camps, you know, training camp. preseason. So one is getting guys adjusted you know, to the roster, uh, getting adjusted to the new city, getting adjusted to money, negotiating the contracts, getting them settled. Uh, so now one of the other things we do is we get our guys situated, get our guys' contracts negotiated. We constantly work to get our veteran guys that don't have jobs placed. You know, I, earlier I mentioned Olivier. Sooner or later he'll be healthy and ready to sign a, a nice contract. You know, I would imagine at, at some point in time Jack Crawford will get some interest. Trevon Coley will get some interest. Christian Covington will get some interest. We've got guys, veteran guys, going to workouts beginning, you know, tomorrow, as, as soon as tomorrow. We've got guys leaving to their NFL team as soon as tomorrow with Michael Strong headed to the Colts. We'll help them find places. We have a real estate division. So we've got, you know, we've got real estate components. We've got a psychological component as well for guys that have some up and downs emotionally. We've got an on-staff psychiatrist 24-7. We'll, uh, we'll start recruiting veteran guys that are unhappy with their agents. Uh, we'll make an announcement next week. We're going to add a new veteran player uh, who fired his agent, I think, as recently as four, four, three or four days ago and just reached out to us last night. We had a Zoom meeting with him, and I think we're getting him, but you never know. We'll start recruiting college kids. We've kind of already started a little bit, but we had some juniors and some kids that might have opted out last year that we recruited. Uh, we've got our coaches that we represent. Some coaches will get extensions. Some co- we'll, we got a couple coaches calling me that are going to probably hire me, uh, new coaches. And it really doesn't ever stop. I'll take a little vacation with my family. Uh, my kids have been home and trapped for 15 months now uh, due to COVID. Uh, and due to the stupidity of the state of Florida, uh, and COVID isn't going away anytime soon in this country. Uh, and so we'll, then we'll start in July. Uh, you know, hopefully most of our guys are going on some kind of vacation. 
um, this spring, you know, this summer. Um, I know Xavier and Howard's going on one at the end of May. Uh, I think Morgan Fox is going on one next week. And so we do that with our concierge and travel division. So we're pretty intimately involved in, you know, every day-to-day component, every day-to-day facet of our guys' lives. And then July, I'll start on the road. Uh, I plan on this year probably being on the road for 21 to 31 days straight with basically no break in between. Um, And the grind doesn't stop, boys. The grind doesn't stop. You know, hopefully there'll be some guys that, that earn early extensions. We'll take a look at those. There might be some trades. There might be some guys that are getting some restructures. And we just keep keep the keep the machine going. Um, God willing, it goes well for all of our guys. And, you know, we've got 45, 50 guys on opening day. But you know and I know that's not realistic. So we'll have guys that get cut. We'll have guys that get hurt. We'll have injury settlements. We'll have rookie contracts that we've got to negotiate. We've got settlements that we'll have to negotiate. We've got extensions that we could potentially negotiate. And we just keep doing what we do every day. There's no, there's no break um, for me or Ness or Brian uh, on the day-to-day side of the business, which I think is why guys love us. Absolutely. Like we've learned from this episode, like we've learned from the last time you were here, David, you pride yourself on not being the typical agent. You try being there for these guys in ways that these big companies don't, you know, whether it's, you know, making sure they, they get what they need when they're moving to their cities or, or helping them with the financial aspect. It, it's all great. And it is truly a pleasure to hear what you have to say and your experiences you know, the grind never stops. And, and I, I think I speak for all of us where we truly respect your hustle of what you do the 365 days a year for these guys. Got to do it. Truly something. Got to do it. I got I to compete against agencies that have 25 employees and sign 15 to 20 guys every draft class by cutting their fee and promising the sun, the moon, and the stars and then delivering them a river. So, you know, my mindset is, is nobody's going to outwork us. Um, and I appreciate the compliments, obviously. Of course, of course. And we, we here wish you nothing but the best of luck with this upcoming season. That's unfortunately all the time that we have today. David Cantor, our favorite NFL agent. David, thank you again for joining us today. Congrats again to you on the six guys. We wish nothing but them the best of luck this season. Uh, if you want to check out what David's going to be doing this upcoming season, you know, like he said, he's got a bunch of moves in the works. Go follow him on Instagram at DEC Management. You can look it up. He's also got a website. He's all over social media. DEC MGMT. DEC MGMT. You heard it here, folks. And then my, my Twitter is at David Cantor. Go follow. C-O-N-T-E-R. Get a lot of great content there. Just like on our own page, we got to give a shout out. To Matt Angler, of course, who's always doing a great job for the 3P podcast, blowing up our social media, giving you the most updated content. So shout out to Matt. And, of course, shout out to Wild Chat Sports for their partnership with us. They got a lot of great content there. Thank you again, David. And we will see you again next week.